It's a blessing we've been given to meet together tonight. Hope you'll be turning to Luke chapter 4. We'll be considering some of the features and aspects of that chapter as we reflect on the temptations of our Master with the hope that some of those observations can be of benefit and help to us as we encounter temptations as well. The opening slide will be an introductory one. It's fair to say that temptation, of course, is a very human topic in the sense that all of us face it. In James chapter 1, verses 13 and following, we read, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted. Did you note? All of us are going to be subject to temptation. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when finished, bringeth forth death. Therefore, the whole idea of temptation is beneficial, important to each of us. And with that, may I suggest that tonight our focus will be on the temptation specifically described relative to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, two different chapters that give us record of these events. And so tonight we'll look primarily at Luke's record. So again, Luke chapter 4, if you'd like to hold your Bible open to that place, we'll be referring to a number of the features of it. First of all, let's use a slide that reminds us of the setting of these events. And once we've identified that setting, following that we will look more carefully at the individual temptations and the features of them to be sure. The setting of the temptation. Jesus had reached the age of about 30. And at that time, Luke tells us or in chapter number 3 that our Savior went to the Jordan River and asked to be baptized by John the Baptist. It was right after that that he began his public ministry. And you and I then appreciate that the great powerful message of the gospel is what, of course, he presented at that particular moment. Now, you and I remember that his baptism by itself was a phenomenal event. After all, his baptism, at least in structure, looks a lot like yours and mine. Immersed in water, but might we take note, ours is for the remission of sins. He didn't have any sins to be remitted. Rather, when John asked him, I need to be baptized of you, not the other way around. In Matthew chapter 3, it was the Lord who said, Suffer it to be so now, for it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, it was the right thing to do. It said, of course, before one and all, the pattern of what's involved in baptism. Isn't that a phenomenal measure then when you and I appreciate that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended and appearing in the form of a dove. In John chapter 3, verses 34 and following, we're told that the Lord had the measure of the Spirit without measure. That is to say, His appreciation of and His association with the Holy Spirit was extreme and profound and exceedingly great. Keeping all of that in mind, it now leads us to notice immediately what happened. And I say again, immediately what happened. Three different texts, one in Matthew, one in Mark, and one in Luke, all tell us what you'll notice about the middle of that slide. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness for Him to be tempted. In fact, Mark's account specifically says, The Spirit driveth Him into the wilderness. Now, as you and I give thought to, here was our Master, again, about the age of 30. 
He was in this wilderness region. And might we take note that this region was a rather wild area. Mark tells us there were wild beasts here. Can you imagine? Forty days, Jesus, not far from the wild beasts, and He was able to hear them perhaps, and He was aware, no doubt, of their presence. And yet all the while, we notice that the Lord then entered into a period of fasting. Forty days and forty nights, He fasted. Now the text is rather clear in telling us that as He underwent that, you may appreciate, that he wasn't the only biblical person who ever experienced a fast of that duration. Moses, as you and I learn in Deuteronomy 9 verse 9, there he, of course, while on Mount Sinai for 40 days, he had fasted. In 1 Kings, we learn that Elijah, the prophet, for 40 days fasted. On this occasion, our master, for 40 days, he was involved in experiencing this period of fasting. It's not at all surprising to us then that Luke chapter 4, again, verses 1 and 2 read like this. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. You and I likely aren't at all surprised at the end of the forty days he was hungry. In fact, very much so, no doubt. And it was at that moment that the tempter came before him. It might be wise for us to appreciate here, Jesus wasn't tempted during the full continuation of the 40 days. It was only when the 40 days ended. That's when the temptations occurred. Matthew's version makes that especially clear. As you and I close that slide, with this hungry Jesus now, The tempter is ready. But I'd like to use one more slide for you and me to consider before we jump into the first temptation. And this intermediate slide is this one. There at least are a number of occurrences wherein there is at least some assertion that maybe these temptations were not real. In other words, after all, Jesus was the Son of God. He had left heaven. He was here upon earth. He was God in the flesh. And therefore, in light of that, some throughout the years have at least made the claim, well, these records of the so-called temptations were only imaginary. They were only figments of the imagination. They were hallucinations, or at best, they were a myth that can serve as an example for you and me. Might you and I take note, that is not a proper viewpoint. These were really temptations. They really were enticements to do evil. You and I might even note the definition of what it means to be tempted. When you and I are tempted, we are enticed to do what is evil. We are enticed to do something that God has condemned. We are allured to do something that's not favorable in the sight of God. And that's really what these were. They were not imaginary. They weren't by some means a hallucination. They weren't just a story. They really happened. And it's along that line we could also add one more thing. It was possible for Jesus to sin. Now let me say that again. If the Lord had given in to any one of these, 
he would have committed a sin. It was possible for him to do what was not right. After all, if he couldn't have, then really these weren't temptations. If you can't really do what the thing encourages you to do, it's not a temptation. The Lord was tempted. I might use that to make this observation. What is great, of course, about this is indeed, although he could have made the wrong decision, he didn't. In every single one of these events, the Lord responded and maintained a purity, a godliness, a connection to the God of heaven. He never once gave in to what the tempter enticed him to do. No wonder in light of that, it would then be fair to say that although he could have sinned, he didn't. And it is in that way these can serve as such great examples for you and me. What did he do so that he overwhelmed the temptation? What then may you and I do to overwhelm the temptations that face us? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we notice there that we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in all the avenues or all the ways in which you and I might be, and yet He overwhelmed every one of them. He victoriously emerged triumphant over every temptation. At this point, couldn't we observe that that verse perhaps reminds us of another one in the book of Hebrews? In Hebrews 7, verse 26, speaking of our high priest Jesus Christ, He's holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Notice again, separate from sinners. Although He can identify in the sense He was tempted, He never fell into the temptation by committing it, by doing what was encouraged of Him. Maybe one final thing to notice on that slide. When the text says that Jesus did not sin, it's not merely that He did not actually commit these things the devil encouraged Him to commit. He not only didn't have a thought that crossed His mind that was sinful, and He didn't say anything in response to them that was sinful. Oh, what a great challenge that is for you and me. When we face temptations, we need to not only hope that we certainly don't fall to the temptation and do what we're encouraged not to do, but even the thinking that we have relative to this, and even the words we speak in connection to it would not be inappropriate and would not be misdirected. One last thing on that slide. This is a reminder for each of us to keep in mind, and it would seem to me to be a vital one. It isn't wrong to be tempted. Let me say that again. It is not sinful to be tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. The sin comes when one gives in to the temptation, when one does what the temptation is encouraging one to do. You and I are often going to be tempted, but may we in strength... And may we in devotion overwhelm that temptation and though tempted not succumb to it. With these as introductory comments, the background now said and the reality of the temptations highlighted, let's now look at each one of them. Again, back in Luke chapter 4, verse number 3 now says, And the devil said unto him, 
If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Now keep in mind that Jesus had just fasted for 40 days. To say that He was hungry is likely quite an understatement. And it was in that condition of our Master when the tempter, and we might take note, the devil is especially the one mentioned. The devil is the tempter. He's the one behind temptation. He's the one that's the motivating factor beneath it. It's the devil. It is true that throughout the centuries some have had the idea that evil is just this absence of good. And there really isn't any such thing as a devil. Evil is just what happens when there is no good. May you and I take note. Evil is more than that. And there is a being called the devil, called Satan. As the Bible reveals him, a number of other descriptive names. And here it is this tempter, the devil, that comes before Jesus and says, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. As you can tell on the slide, One of the first things we might note here, the devil was encouraging Jesus to work a miracle. Turn this rock into bread. Aren't you hungry? Wouldn't it taste good? Don't you know that it would satisfy the desire of your physical flesh? Maybe you and I could immediately take note. It would have been no problem for Jesus to work a miracle. He worked many miracles while He was here in the flesh. Quite often astounding things occurred He brought sight to several who were blind instantly, miraculously, and immediately. He healed more than one who was lame. And again, it wasn't just a medical procedure that did it. It was an instantaneous healing from the Son of God Himself. He even raised the dead. He instantly calmed a storm on the sea. He walked on water, and the list could go on. To say that the Lord was able to work miracles, that's certainly something you and I appreciate and understand. Here the devil was asking him to work a miracle. In fact, exhorting him to do it. If you're the Son of God, turn this rock into some bread. I might ask that you and I consider on that slide. There's a little clause that the devil prefaced that statement with. Did you notice what it was? If thou be the Son of God... In essence, prove to me your deity. Prove to me your Messiahship. If you are who you say you are, prove it to me. Now I might ask that it would seem to me perfectly right to note, it is not that the devil had any question as to who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was the Son of God. And quite frankly, it seems like one could view that statement as, since you are the Son of God... Turn this rock, turn these stones into bread. Now at this point we could ask this question and do so rather carefully. What would have been wrong in Jesus turning a rock into bread? After all, He was hungry. After all, it would have satisfied the need for nourishment in the body. It isn't wrong to eat. If it is, all of us are in trouble. It isn't wrong to take nourishment into the body. We understand that's necessary to live. What would have been wrong if the Lord had miraculously turned stones into bread? 
may I offer two, two possibilities? May I offer two considerations? One of which is this. Never ever was a miracle performed in the days of the New Testament for the purpose of gratifying the physical character of the body. That was not the purpose of a miracle. The purpose of a miracle was to authenticate the Word of God, to authenticate the message of God, and to manifest the reality of what He's doing. Miracles were not done simply to gratify one's personal needs, however acute they may have been. Therefore, on this occasion, Jesus wasn't about to inappropriately use divine power to turn rocks into bread. That would not have been the proper usage of the power associated with a miracle. Notice again, when the miracles were done, such as raising the dead, as in the case of Lazarus, that caused a great deal of belief and conviction relative to the fact this man Jesus really is the Son of God. Look at what He did. And you might recall in John chapter 12 that the Pharisees and others were so moved by that that at that point they made their determination, we've got to kill Him. <coughs> May I say that in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 to 4, there the miracles and signs are expressly identified as those which authenticate the message of heaven. That's the reason miracles were done. They weren't done simply to give a person something to eat. Even when Jesus fed the 5,000 miraculously with the loaves and the fishes, remember that was a sense of faithfulness relative to the conviction in the minds of all of those who were blessed to eat that day. Jesus didn't just make food for Himself that day. May we say one more thing. We read earlier that in all points Jesus was tempted like as we are yet without sin. If the Lord had been able to turn rocks into bread, that would have separated Him from ordinary people like you and me. You and I can't turn rocks to bread. We'll never be able to do it. That requires a miracle. And if the Lord had thus done that, it would have distinguished Him from us, and this temptation then would have been different than anyone we would face. Perhaps one final set of thoughts, as you'll notice on the bottom of that slide. It has to do with the Lord's reply. Let's continue reading in verse number 4. And Jesus answered him. Notice the devil is referred to as a him. A being, a personal being. And as Jesus addressed him, he said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word of God. The Lord's reply, so powerful, so remarkable. Did you notice the three words with which it began? It is written. When the Lord addressed this temptation, when He in fact answered it, the thing which He did was to make reference to the Word of God. He quoted, in this case from Deuteronomy 8, verse number 3, his knowledge of the Old Testament was sufficient. His appreciation of its meaning was sufficient. His understanding of its context adequate. He used that passage directly in answer to the temptation. No wonder that light, as you can see at the bottom of the slide, what an amazing lesson and what a tremendous example for us to meet temptation. It is vital 
that we have a working knowledge of the Word of God. May I say, you and I by ourselves have no power greater than the devil, but the devil is no match for this. More than once in the New Testament, we remember that on occasion. In fact, as we're about to see when we conclude the last temptation in a moment, after Jesus overwhelmed him, then it says the devil left him for a season. The devil had nothing else to attack Jesus with. Jesus had used the Word of God. We have to do it too. We have to be capable to say it is written, at least in principle, and use that to overwhelm and use that to defeat the temptation that comes our way. In Psalm 119, verse number 11, the psalmist therein stated, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. If you and I wish to keep sin at bay, if we wish to keep the reality of falling to temptation at bay, one of the key ingredients that will make that a possibility, and in fact even a reality, is the Word of God. The devil, you see, cannot beat it. At this point, turning stones into bread, that's what the first temptation was. I hope we have a keener appreciation of what was involved in it and a number of the features attached to it. One temptation wasn't enough. The devil had more to consider, and let's come to the second one. In verse number 5, it says, And the devil. So after failing with the first temptation, the devil now tries yet another tactical approach. Perhaps it would be fair to say, as we described that first one, you may have noticed on the slide, I ask you to appreciate that really the New Testament identifies only three possible avenues of temptation. They're listed in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and following. It is the case, and I referred to it on the previous slide, that there the writer says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lusts thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You'll notice verse 16 in particular. John, what is it that's in the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every temptation that you and I face can be placed into either one of those categories or some combination of those categories. Isn't that true of Eve? In Genesis chapter 2, God had said, every tree in the garden you can eat of except one. It's the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not allowed to eat of it. Now, both Adam and Eve understood that commandment. In chapter number 3, the serpent came before Eve. We don't know where Adam was, the text doesn't say, but he came before Eve. And he entered into conversation with her. This is the way it went. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He asked her a question. And she powerfully responded, Indeed, we are not allowed to even touch the tree in the midst of the garden. We can't eat of it. We can't even touch it. At that point, Satan next answers and says, Ye shall not surely die. He added one word. Now at this point, we note the following. 
He went on to say, But in the day you eat of it, God does know that you will become as gods, knowing good and evil. And verse number 6 says, She looked upon it, and she saw that it was good for food. I feel sure that whatever fruit was on that tree of knowledge of good and evil, it was probably the best tasting fruit in the garden. It was probably incredibly enticing in almost every way. I'm sure the tree was perfectly shaped. I'm sure every avenue of whatever the fruit was was immaculate. She looked upon it, and she saw that it was good for food. Notice the lust of the flesh. It would appeal to the physical appetite. Well, here, the Lord was hungry. Those rocks will appeal if turned to bread to the physical appetite. Jesus didn't fall for that. He knew there was a higher needfulness than satisfying the hunger of the body. It's being right with God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. As you and I come to this second one, notice the statement of verse 5. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. This temptation was a remarkable thing, wasn't it? After failing on the first one, the devil took Jesus in some way or fashion to an exceedingly high mountain. And he made this arrangement. Do you see all the kingdoms of the world? From this appreciation, whatever it was, there could be an understanding of the associated jurisdiction and power to every nationality on earth. Satan said, I tell you what, you realize that I have the ultimate influence in all of that. Now please appreciate this with me. It's still true that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24.1. God owns it all. But in terms of influence, there is no doubt. <laughs> there can be no question. Satan rules the day in virtually all communities on earth. Few there be that find the pathway to heaven. Aren't we taught that in Matthew 7, 14? Satan here said, Jesus, you know yourself. I've got the influence primarily in all these places. And I tell you what, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give all that influence to you. Now today, think of the humanity who long for control even in a local place, much less control over a whole state or an entire nation, or yea, the whole world. Satan was offering to Jesus the opportunity to be absolutely the most influential thing in all regions and places on the surface of the planet. Sounds inviting, doesn't it? If one wished his message to go worldwide, wouldn't this be the way to do it? It sounds awfully enticing. All you've got to do is worship me. At this point, wouldn't it be quick, though, to note how the Lord replied? Verse number 8, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, 
Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Several things might be noted, one of which is this. Worship is incredibly significant. To offer it in the wrong way to the wrong, soul, to the wrong being is fundamentally wrong. Here, Jesus asserted only God is to be worshipped. No other entity, no matter how powerful, no other being, no matter how worthy otherwise that being may be. After all, isn't it interesting in the Bible, there's reference to the archangel Gabriel, and there's Michael. As powerful as those angels are, they are not worthy of worship. Here we're taught, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. It is in that light you'll notice very quickly. Aren't you a bit impressed at this moment with the brashness and the boldness of the devil? Here is the Son of God, Jesus, and the devil knew it. And he comes right in front of him and says, Worship me. You and I ought never think the devil will be shy. He'll come right to your face. Isn't it true in 1 Peter 5, 8, he's likened to a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He won't be bashful or shy. He will come right to you and me with the strongest words he can find to get us to do what he wants us to do. If he was willing to try it on the Master, do you think he wouldn't try it on us? But of course, in that light, we notice one more time the Lord's reply. It is written. One more time the Master turned to Scripture. I would think each of us at this point could be incredibly impressed. What did Jesus not do to answer the temptation? He didn't work a miracle. As powerful as He was and as often as He did use miracles, why didn't He work a miracle to leave Himself from the mountain and go back elsewhere, but He didn't do it? May I say the Word of God is more powerful than miracles. It was the Word of God that was able to overwhelm the temptation of the tempter. The Lord this time quoted from Deuteronomy 6. He did so again urging the worship only to God. Today as we assemble and gather, how vital, how beautiful is the concept of worship. We are taught in John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We always seek to do that as we assemble to carry out Bible-approved things in Bible-approved ways and worship in a way that would please our Heavenly Father. One last thing on that slide. The greatness of that concept of worship rests in our heart to the extent that Aren't we reminded that the devil tried to pervert worship? May I suggest to you he's been trying to do that in all the ages since. How often does he try to get people play a guitar, play a drum, play a banjo? We all know he's done it, and he's had success at it. Jesus understood the principle of worship was such that you worship God and Him only. And you, of course, need to do that in a way that He has approved and He has asserted that He will accept. Any other worship is unacceptable. In Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, Jesus therein stated, 
But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. As you and I have given thought now to two of the temptations, one more to go. As we come in Luke chapter 4, we now arrive at verse number 9. Verse number 9 reads like this, And he, that's the devil, brought him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. This third temptation that I've entitled casting down from the temple has taken the following form. Notice again, the devil brought the master back to Jerusalem. And as he did so, verse number 9, he set him in a particular place on a pinnacle of the temple. Now the Herodian temple was a rather large edifice. It was a large structure. Where exactly Jesus was sitting here, we just don't know. But we do know this. The tempter had these words to say to him. If you are the Son of God, jump off. If you're the Son of God, cast yourself off from this high position. One more time, may I ask you to notice the question it seems to raise or the advice, prove it to me. I want you to demonstrate that you are who you say you are. I want you to provide clear manifestation that you are. And you know what? If you'll throw yourself off, that'll be enough. If thou art the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. You may notice on that slide, though, the devil did something here that ought to capture your attention and mine very intriguingly. It comes, as you and I notice, verse number 9, as it follows into verse number 10. For it is written, the devil said it is written. Are you aware of the fact the devil can quote Scripture? Are you aware of the fact that the devil has at least some degree of working knowledge of the Bible? In the very presence of the Son of God, the devil quoted from Psalm 91. In fact, verses 11 and 12, he quoted it practically verbatim. He did a great job quoting out of Psalm 91. As he did so, he used it for evidence, for proof, for additional exhortation to Jesus. Well, look, I'm only asking you to do what the Bible says you ought to do. Cast yourself down. Because that text in Psalm 91 says... Lest I dash thy foot against a stone, he shall bear thee up. And that's exactly what the devil quoted. Isn't that interesting? I suspect there are times you and I forget the fact the devil too has a knowledge of the Word of God. He has some appreciation of what its contents are. But you, as you'll notice quickly on that slide, did the devil make a correct application of that Scripture? You and I have been raised to cast a strong emphasis on 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And how does it end? 
rightly dividing the word of truth. We have heard it once, if we've heard it at all. The fact that if you take a text out of its context, it becomes a pretext. We always seek to rightly divide the Word of God and use it to teach what God intended to teach, never inserting into it what our ideas are. The devil took that passage, and though he quoted it correctly, he misapplied it. It was not teaching what he asserted to Jesus that it taught. And today, what a great danger that is for you and me. There are times when perhaps the devil can make at least an indirect reference to certain passages of the Word of God, but he misapplies it. He misreferences it. He uses it in a way to contradict some other passage. And you and I know the truth of the Bible never, ever contradicts. It's always in harmony. It's always in unity. No wonder in that light. This would be a good time to at least give some thought to that avenue that the devil was attacking Jesus with on this occasion. We mentioned earlier turning stones to bread, that was the lust of the flesh. Casting thyself off the temple, that's the lust of the eyes. Jesus saw all the kingdoms of the world and in a moment of time. This time is the pride of life. Cast yourself down. If you really are who you say you are, I need you to illustrate it, demonstrate it, convincingly prove it to me. The pride of life. I would suggest the devil is a master at making use of the pride of life to attack you and me. If you really are the Christian you say you are, if you really are a dutiful employee, if you really are the kind of person of notoriety and faithfulness as you claim to be, then do this. Think this. And the particular thing he's encouraging ultimately has no good end to it. But he prompts you and I to think along the lines of a matter of convincing thrust, the pride of life. Pride is such a dangerous thing. The pride spoken of in the Word of God is often a pride likened unto and included in those lists that are so often condemned, as in Romans chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and Galatians chapter 5. The pride of life leads us to close that slide like this. What did the Master do? Let's, let's keep reading. Verse number 12, And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, that's equivalent to it is written, but it says, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Did you notice the devil quoted Scripture all right, but he used it in a way that was improper, inappropriate, misapplied, misdirected. Jesus again quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this time again He says, It is written, it is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is still wrong whenever you or I then assertedly make this matter of trial, this temptation, if you please, to God. He is the Creator and we are the created. He is the Great One and we are not. It is not our job to ever question Him, to ever attack Him, to ever blaspheme Him, to ever tempt Him. 
Rather, in faith, it is our job to say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts 9 verse 6. Or as Isaiah declared it, Here am I, send me. It is merely our job by faith to do what he says to do. That's what faith is. That's what it has always been. In Hebrews chapter 11, one by one the examples are listed of Abel and all the way on down through time. And everyone by faith did something. But their faith was illustrated. It was shown as they simply obeyed what God told them to do. As we have thus looked at these temptations, all that remains, a statement of conclusion. Let's do that rather briefly in the following way. We highlighted the setting of these temptations that followed 40 days of fasting, and then we noted the fact that they were real. They were not imaginary. They were not hypothetical in any way. Turning stones into bread. Bowing down to worship the devil. Casting yourself off the temple. Every one of them really happened, and every one of them were responded by Jesus with it is written. I hope we've been reminded that there's no greater and more powerful thing to which we can turn in the answer to temptation than the words of the Bible. It is a force the devil cannot defeat. I hope this has been an encouragement to each of us as we have reflected on these temptations. And in so doing, we close our lesson with an invitation. If there be anyone in the audience who may be even in the throes of serious temptation, you haven't succumbed to it, but you'd like to ask for prayers of strength that you might be able to overwhelm it, we'd be honored to pray for that. If you have, though, been guilty of sin, make that right. As an alien sinner, you're commanded you must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. But as a child of God who has become wayward, to come back to your first love, you need to repent of that error. Make confession of it, 1 John 1, verses 8 and following. And we'd be honored to pray on your behalf to God that that would be forgiven. If we could be of help to you today, we'd be honored to do that. And we'd invite you to come and let us know the way we can be of assistance while together we stand and while we sing.